This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. I really hate to say it, but this is our last original episode. Over the next four weeks, we'll be re-airing some of our favorite stories, but the rest of this hour is all fresh. And I hope you'll excuse us for this, but the stories we've saved for this episode are a bit personal. Producer Martin Kessler leads us off with a tale from his childhood. A few weeks ago, I called up my friend Hannah. Well, so how are you doing that, first of all? Uh, doing well. We met in uh, kindergarten, yeah. where Hannah took yeah, on the critical job of distracting me every morning so my parents could successfully drop me off. As, you know, one of us was having some separation anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> when Hannah and I spoke recently, she was just three weeks away from getting married. And, and I really appreciate that you could make time for this important piece of journalism I think it's important. What we'll get to is important. Maybe the Cheesecake Factory incident less so. <laughs> the Cheesecake Factory incident. It's one of the more embarrassing stories from my childhood. And while it involves two famous and talented sports stars, it's a tale I've kept secret from you, dear Only a Game listeners, for the past seven years. But with the show coming to an end, it's time to finally come clean and to try to make amends. To tell you this story, I also called up two of Only a Game's biggest fans. I am Rod Kessler. I'm the father of Martin Kessler. And my mom, Sarah Abrams. Um, Cool. So are you recording on your phone? I am. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, you can do it again, right? You'd talk to me again? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is it. You get one chance with me and this is it. Back in 2003 or 2004, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I went to the Cambridge Side Galleria Mall near Boston with Hannah and my parents. This was before their divorce. We ended up at the Cheesecake Factory for lunch. I do remember it being dark, which the Mm. Cheesecake Factory there is actually kind of dark because there's like no windows on most of it. I mean, I remember sitting at the table with uh, your dad and, and you and Hannah and the waiter, it was a man. Probably in his late 20s or early 30s. He was taking our order, and then he turned to you. And whispered somewhat conspiratorially, you won't know who's here, um, but it's Nomar Garcia Parra. Nomar with two home runs on the night. Nomar Garcia Parra was the Red Sox star shortstop. He was a big deal in Boston, especially for kids my age. His rise to stardom coincided perfectly with our getting old enough to really follow baseball. He was the one with the gloves, right? Very unique routine when he steps into... You know, everyone was amused by that. Tightens his glove up, wristbands, there's the feet. He was a superstar. He was beloved. He was a heroic figure around Boston. And now he was sitting just a few booths away. This was surely the greatest thing that had happened to me since getting a Charizard and a pack of Pokemon cards. Hannah, who loved soccer, wasn't quite as excited. Baseball? Not really my thing. So if I was going to try to get Nomar's autograph, I was going to have to go by myself. The waiter tipped me off after Nomar put in his order and told me that I should approach before his food arrived. You must have followed the waiter to another part of this restaurant because I believe Nomar's booth was pretty much out of sight of most other people. Clutching a pen and a white Cheesecake Factory cocktail napkin, I headed for Nomar. But despite our waiter's impeccable game plan, I quickly realized there was a problem. As I rounded the corner and caught sight of Nomar, I saw that his pizza had just arrived. Not only that, Nomar had just lifted his fork and knife, 
Yes, if memory serves, Nomar was going to eat a personal plain cheese pizza with a fork and knife and was about to dig in for his first bite. I should have turned around, but I was like an overeager base runner who had too much momentum to suddenly pull up at third base. I kept barreling toward home. I approached Nomar's booth and asked for his autograph. He set down his fork and knife, and he took my pen and napkin. Nomar didn't say much, but the woman sitting across from him did. She asked me my name. I told her. She smiled, and she said they had a friend named Martin. Nomar finished signing the napkin, and I left. I just remember you came back, and you had the autograph, and I I wanted to know uh, how it went. And what I remember you saying is that he was okay, you know, but his wife was really nice. And, and I said, you, you do know who his wife is, don't you? In 1998, Nomar had attended a promotional event at Harvard. Also there, Mia Hamm, the star of U.S. soccer. Here's Mia Hamm, in the box, the shot, go! She's got the record! The story goes that Mia and Nomar competed against each other in a soccer shootout. Nomar scored three goals, Mia scored four. Five years later, they were married. So Nomar's wife the woman who'd been so kind to me while Nomar was signing my cocktail napkin, was Mia Hamm. You were not impressed. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. So, But I can't remember, is it because you didn't know who she was or you knew who she was and it just didn't matter to you? You know, it was all about him. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, like, so disappointed in myself. I guess in my memory, I at least I hope that as soon as I found out that it was Mia Hamm that I would have immediately recognized my mistake, but you're saying that wasn't the case. That's, that's not what I recall. I mean, oh, you, But I do remember what you said was that she was very nice. In the years since, especially as I've worked for a show that made it such a priority to share stories of athletes, both male and female, I've grown more and more horrified and saddened by my failure to recognize and appreciate Mia Hamm especially as I've heard more from women my age, like Hannah, about the importance of watching Mia Hamm in the 99 U.S. women's national soccer team. When you saw the crowd, you saw kids that looked like us. You saw girls at a sporting event, which I think, usually when you think of a sporting event, you think of like mid-40s dudes, like with a beer. A little over a year ago, I sent an email to Mia Hamm's agent. The subject line read, admittedly odd media request. I was sure Mia and Nomar would not remember our interaction, but I wanted to have a deeper conversation about the way women's sports have grown in status over the past 15 or so years. I knew this was going to be tough. Mia famously does not like media attention. When she was profiled in Sports Illustrated in 2003, the cover featured a picture of her with the words, The Reluctant Superstar. In fact, buried in that article was this line, Quote, it's a relief when slack-jawed strangers approach and walk right past her to Nomar. Reading that made me feel a bit better about the snub. Multiple requests to Mia's agent got me nowhere, so I reached out to the Dodgers. Nomar now works as an analyst for their TV network and got this response. Quote, going through Nomar on something involving Mia is not advised. Which, to be honest, I kind of loved because it just shows you who's more in demand these days. Last Saturday, I got a final rejection from Mia's agent. I guess I missed my one chance with Mia Hamm. But some of these bigger questions that I wanted to ask Nomar and Mia about the place of women's sports in America, I was still able to explore with a soccer superstar. Christine Lilly and Mia Hamm debuted on the U.S. national team together as teenagers. Lilly retired as the second leading goal scorer in U.S. soccer history. 
But that's not the only reason she was the perfect person to talk to for this story. She played for the Boston Breakers in the early 2000s. She knew the Boston sports culture then. Better yet, she even knew the Cheesecake Factory at the Cambridge Side Galleria. Yeah, familiar with it. So I told Christine Lilly the whole story about going up for the autograph. He was about to dig in and I was like, I've gone too far. I have, I'm going to ask. <laughs> That's cute. And I asked for her reaction. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think it's an innocent, it's innocence and in life and society at that time. Yes, we won the World Cup in 99. So I think people were just recognizing us and knowing our names. But I think if you weren't totally in the sport, you know, it wasn't something that you would just think, oh, there's Mia. How often would you get recognized just out and about back in like 2003? You know, it was like a good amount, yes, and then a good amount, no. I lived in Brookline over by Coolidge Corner. But that's where I am right now. Oh, you are? <laughs> yeah. Where? What street? Uh, Beacon in St. Paul. Oh, all right. I was on Babcock. Right um, by here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I used to walk around there, you know, this young boy befriended me and he was a huge soccer fan. So I would see him in the neighborhood all the time. And I'm to this day still in touch with the family. So I think it was one of those things where people are still kind of getting used to uh, the women's game, but the soccer fans kind of knew who you were. Back in 1999, 18 million Americans watched the World Cup final. For the 2015 final, it was more than 25 million. And from 2015 to 2019, the average worldwide live audience across the entire tournament more than doubled. My friend Hannah has seen the widening fan base herself. Last year, she went to France for the Women's World Cup. It was much less of that kind of group of like eight-year-old girls. Like You didn't really see that. Um, the whole stadium was sold out. Two or three people down, there was a row of like eight guys enjoying the fact that you could order beer delivered to your seats. They had like matching USA Hawaiian shirts of some kind or something. <laughs> like I didn't really understand the vibe, but they were there and they weren't like with a group of girls. What did you make of, or how did it feel to see a group of just eight, you know, random twenty dudes. something <laughs> dudes there? Yeah. Um. It's interesting. I feel I feel mixed ways about it. Like on one hand, it's nice that it's being just seen as like a sport that you can get really excited about and go to. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like I hope those gaggles of eight-year-old girls can still show up and still feel like this is like a sporting event that they can get involved in. Before I said goodbye to Christine Lilly, I had one last favor to ask of her. Well, I just wanted to also say um, or ask that next time you talk to Mia, if you could think to just please tell her thank you for being so nice to me and tell her that I'm sorry <laughs> and that I'm really right, the loser. I'm, I'm, I'm sure she's had that done to her many times. <laughs> and I think sometimes if it was a young girl, I bet you they saw Mia and didn't know who Nomar was. And I think it probably happens a little bit more now for Nomar than it did, especially with young girls. But my friend Hannah has a much more important message for Mia Hamm and the other members of the 1999 U.S. Women's National Team. Hey, just want to say thank you. You've made a huge impact in my life, in my confidence, really. I mean, it goes beyond soccer. Being good at one thing kind of spreads to the rest of your life. That story came from Only a Game's Martin Kessler.
We had not intended to cover any breaking news this week, but then something happened in the world of sports that was too important to ignore. For only a game regular Kenneth Shropshire, this week's events have reminded him of the year 1985 and a song. There were a number of entertainers engaged in divesting from South Africa and trying to end apartheid in South Africa. And there was this great song, Sun City, and and the hook was... And Sun City was the the Vegas of South Africa. Actually, it was in a homeland adjacent to South Africa, where they were paying big, big money for entertainers to come. And the video itself, I mean, it's it's every star of of the moment, which maybe nobody knows today. (laughs) Eddie Kendricks, David Ruffin... Little Steven, Bruce Springsteen is in there. So it's, it's even powerful to watch today to think these entertainers are saying, I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to play in Sun City. I want the system of apartheid to change. That was a moment in time where the world hated South Africa. And what's the world really thinking about us in terms of the way police are killing people? The snippets that they get, you know, there's a black man shot in the back seven times. There's this black man that has a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And that's what the world's starting to think about us. So the idea of, you know, I ain't going to play Sun City really resonated with me a bit and probably a few other people of my generation. We are told that the Bucks are in serious discussion about perhaps not playing in game five today. It was a complete surprise. Of all the things that were contemplated, you know, there had been a little bit of, of rumbling about a possibility that some action would take place, but the bubble was so calm. And I think that's part of what the problem was as I talked to people after the fact. It was so consistently, okay, we've got the logo on the floor, we got the stuff on the jerseys, and this guy's been shot in the back seven times. So this is not working. We need to do something more. The Milwaukee Bucks became the first team to make the decision to boycott their game against the Orlando Magic, but that was just the first domino to fall. I woke up, you know, the day after the, the players successfully boycotted and said, you know, there, there's a connection here. The sports world made a big statement against racial injustice last night by going on a boycott. They said, we're not going to play. And, and they said, you know, we know that we are providing entertainment that there's a value to our black bodies being on display. And the idea that there's some gain you get from our being entertainers and the power that we have to say we're not going to entertain, if that helps to move the needle in terms of how you focus on these men that aren't us, that aren't players on the floor, then this is the step we're willing to take. You know, maybe in a sense they said, you know, I might not play Sun City if this keeps going on. If the prize is ending racism in America, that's not going to happen with one action. It's not going to happen overnight. It it is a a constant battle. And and the more people that that join in and be anti-racist and begin to participate more in the movement. We all have a vision of how powerful an action by athletes, especially across sports, can be. Professor Kenneth Shropshire is the CEO of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. You're listening to Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. 
from mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Back in March of 2017, I attended a narrative journalism conference at Boston University. The theme was storytelling in turbulent times, which, looking back, makes me think we might need to redefine the word turbulent. In between dire warnings about the perils of reporting during the Trump presidency, one speaker stood out. Sure, she talked about the man occupying the White House, and as a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian whose biographies of American presidents have appeared at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, she had a lot to say. But she also spoke about baseball and how her love of the Brooklyn Dodgers made her a better historian. As soon as I had the chance, I sent an interview request to her publicist. The publicist replied, I know Doris would love to do this with you, but finding a time is the issue. Well, we didn't find the time that spring, and we didn't find the time that fall. And here we are three and a half years later, and it's only a game's very last new show. And we have finally found the time. Doris Kearns Goodwin, welcome to Only a Game. I am so glad to be here at Only a Game. What an incredible show. Thank you. So what is your first memory of baseball? My first memory really is when I was six years old and my father gave me this bright red scorebook and he taught me the art of keeping score. I learned about a K or a check or getting the players around the bases. And it just made me feel like I was learning the game in a new way. And mostly I was learning from my father. Was baseball presented as something that was like just a game or was it like something really important? Oh, it was much larger than the game. I mean, my father had grown up in Brooklyn. He'd actually seen Ebbets Field being built. And for him and for so many people where we lived, I mean, we lived in Long Island and we lived on a block where there were Giant and Yankee fans all together. But everybody loved baseball. It was the, the game at the time. And it really was more than just a game because my father had had a really tough childhood. He had lost his parents when he was young. He was orphaned. And he had this incredible contagious optimism despite everything. And everybody who knew him just knew when he walked in a room that there was a warmth to him. That warmth was extended to us as children, obviously. My older sisters were 10 and 15 years older than me. So when baseball became our special thing, I felt very excited. (laughs) (laughs) So I've heard you say that baseball made you a better historian and a better storyteller. How so? Well, I think there's no question. So what would happen when I first was learning how to do this and he would come home from work, I was too excited. So I'd blurt out the Dodgers won or the Dodgers lost, which of course took much of the drama of this two hour telling away. So I finally learned that you had to tell a story from beginning to middle to end. And that became really important because what happens with history is we know the end of the story. Like for example, we know that the Great Depression came to an end when we mobilized for the war. We know that World War II was won by the Allies, but the people living in the Great Depression or in the early days of World War II did not know that. So you have to recreate their anxiety and their fear and the moments of triumph and the moments of tragedy. So it was really the same thing with baseball. That's amazing. Did your dad ever say to you, oh, just tell me who won? No. In fact, he already knew who won. That's what's so crazy, right? He never even told me when I was young that all of this would be in the newspapers the next day. So at first I thought he wouldn't even know what happened to the game without me. 
What was your happiest moment as a Brooklyn Dodgers fan? Well, of course, there's no question that we finally won the World Series after all those long years. And what made it so much fun is that this showed how much baseball was a part of growing up at that time in the 1950s in Long Island. There was an announcement that everybody should go into their homerooms at one o'clock. And the game was piped over the radio. So to be, I mean, I can still picture what it was like to be in that classroom. And then the bell rang at three o'clock and everybody ran home. I mean, those were the days when you were not too far from your school. And when I got home, I got home in time to watch the ending of the game with my mother. And I can just remember when Vin Scully said, ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are champions of the world. And it was the words you've been waiting for your whole lifetime, you know, and so we jumped up and down and it, it was a pretty magical day. And I'm going to bet I could guess what this moment is, too. But what is your saddest moment as a Brooklyn Dodgers fan? <laughs> I'm sure you guess right. It was when the Dodgers lost the playoffs to the Giants in 1951. All that summer, we'd been so far ahead. So then I'm home listening to the game. And my sister, Charlotte, who was quite beautiful and older than me, was there. And just at the last minute, when Bobby Thompson got up, she predicted that he would get a home run. And so she had such power, I thought she made it happen. So I threw down my red scorebook and just, it was a terrible moment. And I ended up living in Concord, Massachusetts. And of course, the shot that Bobby Thompson hit was called the shot heard around the world. And when I would take visitors to see the Minuteman statue, where Ralph Waldo Emerson's words are inscribed, the shot heard around the world, meaning, of course, the shot at North Bridge that, that has something to do with the beginning of the revolution. And I'm thinking of Bobby Thompson, and I think, oh, what is wrong with me? I'm not really a good historian. This is crazy that baseball is intruding into my memories. You know, I didn't predict that correctly at all, because I thought you were going to say your saddest day was when the Dodgers left Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Well, of course. I mean, that was a different dimension of sadness. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, some fans never went back to baseball. It was terrible. You know, they go to California, Giants go away to San Francisco, and I go to college, and baseball's not even part of my life anymore, which is a big hole to have at that moment in time. But then I came to graduate school at Harvard, and a boyfriend took me to Fenway Park. And, you know, there it was again, that small stadium, you know, so impossibly crowded. You're sitting on top of the players. The fans are crazy and they're yelling and screaming. And I fell in love and became a passionate Boston Red Sox fan. The fact is that the Dodgers had been my childhood love, but I actually ended up being married to the Boston Red Sox because my husband had been a Red Sox fan. We had season tickets for 30 years. Hmm. So in 1994, you found yourself telling stories about being a baseball fan to Ken Burns for his multi-part documentary. You were the only woman really featured in that. What was that experience like for you? It actually had a large impact on my life. First, I just assumed I'd be interviewed for a few minutes and then that would be it. And I remember I'd come in from California and, you know, my hair wasn't right. I can still remember that I wasn't dressed the way I would have if I'd known, oh, my God, this is going to become a national documentary. But because he was focusing so much on these teams, you know, especially the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Red Sox, um, a lot of the interview made it into the documentary. And then what happened is the same year that his series came out, I was on the trail because I'd written No Ordinary Time, my book about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. So everywhere I'd go, I would meet people, especially women sometimes, who would say to me, you know, I had a similar relationship with my father. 
And so somebody approached me from the publishing world to say, why don't you write a book about it? And I never would have thought of writing a memoir about myself, but it was really, Wait Till Next Year was really about falling in love with the Brooklyn Dodgers and growing up in the 1950s. Both my parents had died by then. My mother died when I was 15, my father when I was in my 20s. We no longer lived in that same house for a long time. So I went back home and I found people that had been my neighbors. I found my friends who I'd gone to high school with. And to be able to bring my parents back to life after having spent so many decades bringing presidents back to life, it meant an enormous amount to me. And it never, ever would have happened without the Ken Burns thing. So I'm hoping you might have some lessons that we can take from baseball and maybe from history as we face what really feels like an unprecedented moment. It it truly is. And I think the hardest thing about it, as I say, is that we just don't know how it's going to end. If we knew that four months from now there'd be a vaccine, you could get through the four months. And I think the hardest thing that we've lost during this time of not being connected is the loss of the rituals that we used to do. I mean, work and play are not separated anymore. And there was something about the rituals of the baseball season that just made you feel like you knew what was happening during the whole year. I think the most underappreciated aspect of leadership, whenever I talk about leadership, is the ability to find time to relax and replenish your energies. And as I studied my presidents, I found, you know, Lincoln went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said, if I didn't do it, the anxiety would kill me. FDR had a cocktail party every night where the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. There's a certain sense in which still in this difficult time, families have to find rituals that they can share together. If it's not baseball, then maybe it's something else the family does together that takes you away from your individual self and makes you a community again. But keeping the rituals going, I think, is really important. And that's one of the things baseball provided year after year after year for me. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, Karen. I'm glad we could finally do it. Doris Kearns Goodwin's memoir about growing up with the Brooklyn Dodgers is called Wait Till Next Year. Her most recent book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. On July 24, 1993, radio listeners who had their dials tuned to 90.9 WBUR heard the very first broadcast of a new half-hour show. From WBUR, I'm Bill Littlefield, and this is Only a Game. One story in that first show introduced some of the themes we'd revisit again and again during our long run. Here's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. One morning in the summer of 1993, rookie host Bill Littlefield, senior producer David Green, and I drove to Falmouth, Massachusetts. We had no idea how we were going to fill a whole 30-minute show every week with sports stories. But we were giddy as school kids because on that day, we were going to meet up with former Red Sox pitcher Bill Lee and his aging squad of ex-MLB teammates and opponents. They called themselves the New England Gray Sox, and they would be the subject of our first story. The day began with a baseball clinic. As kids gathered for drills, Lee addressed the growing crowd. My dad said, you're Irish, you're Catholic, and you drink a lot. You're going to go far in the Red Sox organization. (laughs) So, irreverent humor. Check. This was promising. Just before game time, we checked in with Darren Erstad, then just 19 years old. He'd go on to become an MLB All-Star, 
On this day, he was thinking about facing Bill Lee. I probably won't be able to hit his fastball, but maybe a slower pitch I can be able to hit. Man, it's almost 50 years old. I believe you probably could hit his fastball. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. So there was our first brush with the vulnerable and honest athlete, the first of many. And for the record, Lee left the pitch up, and Erstad clobbered it out of the park. But despite all the fun, Bill Lee confided that the event wasn't living up to the vision he had for it, because most of the kids, and many of the parents and grandparents, just wanted to collect autographs. Society has changed in such a way that we're so collecting, you know, that we don't uh, seem to enjoy the moment as much. And there was the biggest theme of all. About a minute and a half before it actually happened, Lee foreshadowed the explosion of sports from merely a big money-making enterprise to a gargantuan one. This was a recurring theme on Only a Game for nearly three decades. Bill Littlefield ended the story by noting Lee's dismay and by adding his own thought, which was prophetic in its own way. The best we can hope for is that the brave and mighty dream will provide us with a good show before it fades. Bill Lee and the Gray Sox did that. All these years later, I think that only a game, which was our dream, did that and more. I hope you think so, too. That's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. We'll be right back with Charlie Pierce and a special surprise guest. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Only a Game NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. Next week on Only a Game, we revisit some of our favorite stories from the past 27 years. But now it's time for Charlie Pierce. And you know what? I think I'm going to step aside in favor of a voice you might not have heard for a while. I'm Bill Littlefield, and I haven't hosted Only a Game since July 2018. In those days, of course, you could go to the ballpark and see a game. But we thought it might be fun for me to talk to Charlie Pierce one last time on the show, and I bet it will be. Hello, Charlie. I'm sorry, what was your name again? (laughs) See, it's fun already. Hi, Bill. All right, I'm going to toss out a couple of my favorites among the things that you and I have discussed in the past, and you make of them what you will. First of all, you remember the guy who blew through his money in a West Virginia casino and then left the tables to rob a bank so he'd have some more money and could continue gambling there? Yeah, he and, and, and somehow neglected to remember that everything in a casino is on tape. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that everyone in the bank is on tape. We've discussed a lot of racehorses uh, over the course of the program. Certainly none less illustrious than Zippy Chippy, right? Oh, he's the best. Are you kidding? First of all, he ran 100 races and didn't win any of them. <laughs> exactly right. His owner had <laughs> had attained him by trading a pickup truck for him. Yep. And not only was Zippy Chippy a loser, he was not a very lovable loser. He would bite things. And ultimately, he got himself tossed off the lowest of low racetracks, 
by failing to leave the gate. After you've lost 100 races, what's the point? I have to give him credit for that. (laughs) I've been thinking about how the sports landscape has changed since you and I first talked on Only a Game 27 years ago. Of course, at that point, neither the Red Sox nor the Cubs had won the World Series in anybody's lifetime. It's kind of nice, don't you think, that both of us have lived to see that? Not only that, but the Internet wasn't really a factor. There really wasn't any fantasy sports, per se. Mm-hmm. The boom in women's sports hadn't really happened yet. If there's any development that we track most closely and that I'm proudest of is that we track the rise of women's sports. Absolutely. I agree. WNBA, of course, uh, women's pro soccer, but a tremendous rise in uh, college and university scholarship opportunities for female athletes as well. So all of that and more. Title IX works, okay? Let's never forget that. The Tampa Rays, the Milwaukee Brewers, the San Diego Padres, the Colorado Rockies, the Seattle Mariners, and the Texas Rangers are Major League Baseball teams that still haven't won a World Series. Uh, Do you find yourself rooting for one of them in this truncated season? Oh, of course, because my other hometown, Milwaukee. Uh, And, you know, as someone who, in college, used to go to the old Tin Pot County Stadium, my first Brewers game, I was sitting in the bleachers, and a guy walked up to our group and... He had a wooden, one of those old wooden milk crates filled with crushed ice, and all you could see was the tops of beer bottles. And he asked us a question I have never been asked at the ballpark before or since. How many do you need? (laughs) And I decided that I had gone to college in the right place. So, yes, I am, even though they now play in a, you know, a pleasure dome, I am rooting for the Brewers to do it. Charlie, we have also talked from time to time about athletes and activism. There's no question that current events have altered the conversation on that topic spectacularly. Even since Colin Kaepernick became a free agent, couldn't land a job in the NFL and found new work as an activist. Are you surprised, encouraged, mystified, all of the above, any of them, by what's going on in terms of activism in the NBA and elsewhere? I am surprised by how quickly it happened. And how permanent it seems. And I think a lot of the credit goes to women athletes Mm -hmm. who are out in front of their male counterparts. Charlie, I have really missed our weekly conversations, but I want to let everybody know that earlier this month, on a Saturday afternoon, out of the blue, you texted me to let me know that Leo Messi had scored a spectacular goal for FC Barcelona against Napoli in the Champions League competition. Messi teasing Mario Rui and coming up with the ball, Lionel Messi. Oh, he hasn't, has he? I was shocked, not, of course, that Messi had scored a wonderful goal, uh, but that you were watching the game. Have, have you, in fact, come to appreciate the sport about which you used to mock me without mercy? Well, to tell you the truth, Bill, I was so desperate for live sports uh, <laughs> that I, I was scrolling through the Internet and I said, oh, I've actually heard of FC Barcelona and this Messi guy. Let's see what happens. I still don't understand, by the way, what the difference between the UEFA and the Champions League is. I want to encourage you to keep watching. You'll get it. Don't worry. All right. Finally, Charlie, you have covered sports for other outlets, of course. And, of course, you've written extensively on subjects other than sports. So I just want to ask you about what your stint on Only a Game has meant to you over the years. And if you can work a Firesign Theater line into your answer, so much the better. Well, (laughs) 
Oh, now the pressure is very much on. Uh, no, it's been, you know, it, I think I said this, you know, at the time of your retirement, that it's been one of the joys of my life to be part of this program. My Fridays and my Saturday afternoons are going to be very empty without this program. And I think that, you know, I may well be found out there shooting reds and yellows all day. <laughs> You're very sleepy. And I'll be very sleepy. <laughs> Charlie Fierce is the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing 2019, and for almost 27 years, he has joined only a game each week at this time. Sadly, he will not be doing that next week. Charlie, thanks for everything, and uh, hey, I won't either, so I guess that's okay. Thanks, Bill. That's Only a Game analyst Charlie Pierce talking with Bill Littlefield. Bill was the host of Only a Game for its first 25 years. Now he writes novels no one has published yet. Okay, confession time. When we realized that today would be our last new show, we really wanted to knock it out of the park with an A-list guest, someone who epitomizes what we've been saying for the past 27 years, that sports is important for reasons that have nothing to do with what happens on the field, court, or ice. So, of course, the first person who came to mind was... He'll take it all the way! LeBron James with the reverse! Unfortunately, we were told LeBron James was focused on the playoffs and would not be available for an interview. This was long before the events of this week and calls to boycott the NBA season. But while we couldn't get LeBron for the last real episode of NPR's only sports show, he did make an appearance on the premiere episode of Carrie and Jamel Stick to Sports, a new show on Vice TV. Live from the bubble. Y'all got me live from the bubble. I don't let many people see me inside my room right now, but, uh, you know, y'all two queens, y'all two special women. Carrie Champion and Jamel Hill met at ESPN. Carrie calls the network the four letters. They both left, walking away from what a lot of people would see as dream jobs. And now they're doing something that hasn't really been done before, as two black women hosting a late night TV show on a mainstream network. I would like the exclusive here on Stick to Sports. Are you running for political office once you retire? (laughs) (laughs) Or what? (laughs) I mean, that ain't funny. I don't know why you laughing. Go ahead. You got my vote. Go ahead. So tell me the story of how the two of you became friends. I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> you guys, it's just not a good look uh, for me. <laughs> I stumbled upon the job as first take host slash moderator. Skip Bayless, your take. <sighs> Off the top of my head, Stephen A., I said yesterday that Roger... I went to my old agent Jeopardy. and I said, the girl who is supposed to get the job that I got, i.e. Jamal Hill, wants to have dinner, should I talk to her? He was like, be very careful. You just never know, she might, you know? And I was like, yeah, you know how it is. These women, you know how they are. They're very, very, very petty. And there had happened to be a few headlines too prior to me arriving that suggested that she might be upset that I got the position over her. But we go have dinner and she, for every every reason that I did not want to hang out with her, every reason why I did not want to have dinner with her, she proved me correct. But not in the way you're thinking. I wasn't like, how dare you take my job? It wasn't one of those things. It was just that I had been there at that point six years. So I had six years worth of stories, experiences, and I knew with that job, there was an expectation there that I thought was frankly very demeaning to women. The expectation 
was that the person who was the moderator should just shut up. We're going to leave it here. Heated debate will continue tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern on ESPN2. Ridiculous. You know, you just take them in and out of commercial, you know, they treat you like a prop. I didn't like that that was the case, and I was trying to warn her. She was correct. Yeah. She came in and rained on all my parade, and she was like, let me tell you something. They treat you bad. It ain't right. I hate to see you being treated like poop. That was a really high-profile job, and so for a Black woman to have that job, to me, that was the win for all of us. And so I was so invested in her success before she became my friend, because I'm like, this got to work. I don't know when we're going to get this chance again. <laughs> and so I came on probably a little too strong and being like, you got to fight the power. And so I was like, I'm just here for the burrito. I didn't know I was going to have to step the whole party together correct. and be Harriet Tubman and lead us to freedom. Yeah, yes. like I didn't know. So anyway, fast forward too late. She, the story goes like this. I had a lot of tough ups and downs. I needed an ally. I needed a disruptor. I needed someone who had credibility to defend me. And she was all of those things. And many, many times she came to my rescue. She refused to let the gentlemen that I worked with ignore me without acknowledging that they are doing so. It is to their detriment. And we became really good friends and vice versa. When she got in her bubble of trouble, I always defended her. You know what I mean? Because I, I, what she did for me was unheard of for me as a woman. The world that I had lived in, women didn't often do that. So, Jamel, let's let's talk about your bubble of trouble. It oh. started with a tweet on September 11th, 2017. So remind us about that tweet and the response to it. Well, it was on that day that I told the truth about our president. Jamel Hill tweeted about the president Monday night, calling him a white supremacist, a bigot, and unqualified and unfit to be president. I honestly did not think it was a big deal because I thought that everybody sort of had come to that conclusion, particularly in the wake of Charlottesville. President Trump doubling down, blaming both sides of the protest for the violence in Charlottesville. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. It all registered to our ears the same way that, you know, trying to equate people protesting against injustice with people trying to incur hatred. So I thought after that moment that people had basically come to that conclusion, but it turns out it was breaking news. In what may be an unprecedented move, the White House appeared to call for a TV personality to be fired. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, said that I it was a fireable offense and Donald Trump blamed me for low ratings at ESPN. So it was... Okay, a wait, interjection. I'm going to take it through. Oh, okay. <laughs> she was a black man, it would have been handled differently. I know that for a fact. If she was a white woman, it would have made more headlines in the sense of why are they doing that and why is no one protecting her? Women's organizations would have came to her defense. In fact, dare I say, the organization which we had worked for would have came to her defense. And this is why Black Lives Matter. The blatant disregard for her black life, her black career, her black stance was so bold and so disrespectful it broke our hearts to the core. It told me that I didn't matter anymore. And she handled it with so much grace and class and resilience. She handled it that way with the four letters. She handled it with friends and family. She handled it when she came back to work and when she ultimately decided to leave on her own terms. And it is such an example of how grace and mercy supersedes all. Because I would wake up super early. We were, I was on the West Coast, she was on the East Coast. I was like, who we got to up. <laughs> we got to fight. I'm so off. Like I was so angry. I had to calm her down. She like, was calming me down, and I wasn't even yeah. dealing with it. 
no one came to her rescue. And that was pretty disgusting because we see who this man is. So Jamel left the network in 2018, as you say, on her own terms. And then much more recently, Carrie, you showed up at her house with a bottle of wine and a camera crew to record a pilot episode. I mean, did you tell her you were coming? <laughs> well, yeah, I think you told me. But, but I she, think, she don't. She Listen, if you ever if you're Jamel's friend, she's like, all right, I see you. Like she, doesn't <laughs> even, she has 20 things going on. I, I could have showed her what a stripper. She'd have been like, oh, I don't remember you telling me anything about the stripper coming because I was doing so many things. Carrie essentially kind of took the initiative. Like, I need to just show up at her house. I got some wine, so I know she's going to let me in. We're going to get this done. Without her showing up with that bell gloss, we are not here today. We <laughs> ought to try it. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you hoping to do with this new show? What do you what do you want it to be? What are your dreams for it? My dream is that the same way that we're sitting here talking to you and I feel that you, Karen, are on the same page that we are and Martin behind the scenes. I think so much of where we are right now in this country is that we simply just don't have the understanding or the compassion to see other people the same way we see ourselves or a loved one. Our stories are about fairness, equality, justice. There's a small window where you guys are paying attention. And by you, I don't mean to throw you in the bucket of all white people, but I mean the world is paying attention. There's a collective pause and we have your attention. And this show is going to, I mean, it's called Stick to Sports, and we all understand that it's not going to stick to sports. <laughs> Will it be sports adjacent? No, I'm, I, that's probably a good way to put it. I mean, look, sports issues, as we have seen, especially lately in the last few months, many of those issues are just a microcosm of society. It's always been that way in sports. Yeah. Everybody's not going to be an athlete. We certainly will have some politicians, entertainers. They'll run across the gamut, but we have to stop with this lie of sports is happening over here and the, and the rest of the world is happening somewhere else. They're in the same world. So I'm going to have to let you go very soon because you are two very, very busy women. But before I do, I am hoping that you have some advice for me because I am about to be hopefully very temporarily unemployed, and I will join an absolutely unprecedented number of Americans who are looking for work right now. And some of them, like me, are at the end of what they once thought of as their dream job. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to get through this. I'm going to tell you it's just the beginning. I think you're smart, thoughtful. You won't be unemployed for very long. And your next position, I can claim it, will be bigger and better than you've ever imagined. Every end for me has been the beginning of something bigger and greater than I've ever imagined. You should view this as an opportunity. This is something that I think as women, period, we struggle with doing. All your experiences professionally, personally, have prepared you for this moment. You have to lean into that experience. In translation, you did (laughs) She said what I wanted to say, only smarter. I I really thought that you were just going to tell me to get a bottle of wine and have my best friend over. But that was so much better advice. That's in addition to that. Yes. I mean, I thought that was understood. Karen, have we not made that clear? (laughs) (laughs) You take a bottle of Bella Gloss and show up at somebody else's house and say, we're doing this TV show. Or we're doing this new podcast. Or this new podcast. Or I'm about to go get a new agent. But whatever it is, you write down every single dream, every single thing that you've wanted to do, and you go make it happen. And most importantly, don't underestimate yourself. Stick to Sports airs Wednesday nights on Vice TV. Carrie Champion and Jamel Hill, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. 
All right, thank you, Karen. Good luck. Good luck, Karen. You that. This is only a game's last week together as a staff, but you can follow along with our next moves on Twitter. Jonathan Chang is at Jonathan Y. Chang. Martin Kessler is at Martin Kessler 91. Gary Wallach doesn't tweet much, but he's at only a Gary. Maybe you can persuade him to rev up his Twitter machine. Technical director Marquise Neal, who tweets at one Quizzington, and I will be staying on for four more weeks. And we'll be bringing back some of our favorite pieces from the past 27 years. Do you have a story that you'd like to hear again? Tweet me at klgiven or email oag at wbur.org. I'm Karen Given. Only a Game returns next week. Sort of. Thanks for listening.